I think I think Iggy Pop and the Stooges are a good way to start off a Thursday afternoon. How about you? No fun. <laughs> Thursdays are no fun. Uh, Thursdays are no fun just because they're not Friday. Thursdays are all right. It's not the worst Thursday today. It is payday today, so that, yeah, it could Tuesday. Be a lot Tuesday's worse. usually the real low point of my week. I don't know why. Um, I feel like Tuesdays. I'm like I'm starting to get going, so it's okay. Thursday, I'm just I'm ready for it to be Friday. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Um, all right, we got a busy show. Uh, Alexi McCammon. She is a deputy news editor for Axios. They're an online news publication. Uh, they're going to be on. They released polling today. Uh, and their polling was actually about a number of Senate races. And, and nationally, um, according to their polling, they've got, well, it's it's not good for Democrats. But specifically here in North Dakota, they matched Heidi Heitkamp up against a generic Republican candidate. So that basically just, what respondents were asked were, would you vote for Heidi Heitkamp or would you vote for whoever the Republican candidate is? Um, obviously because during at least the first part of this poll, um, and that was still very much uh, going to be a, a contested primary. You know, Kevin Kramer had said he's staying in the House. Now, at this point, Kramer is the presumptive nominee, but the results we have are against a generic candidate. Uh, Heitkamp losing in that race, 47 to 49. Um, you know, that, that's within the, the margin of error. You could, you could say that's statistically tied, and that would not be at all unfair. Uh, but to be an incumbent below 50% against a generic candidate uh, not good, you know, but I, I think it backs up everything a lot of people have been saying. She's vulnerable. Um, this doesn't mean she's lost by any stretch of the imagination. We've got a long ways to go, but interesting poll result. We'll talk with Alexi about that coming up at 1230. Uh, also at 1 o'clock p.m., Tom Del Beccaro. Now, he ran for the United States Senate against Barbara Boxer in California uh, back in the 2016 cycle. Uh, he's a columnist for Forbes. We're going to talk with him. His home state is being sued by the Trump administration over sanctuary cities. And, and to hear California leaders at this point, uh, including Governor Jerry Brown, tell it uh, they're ready to go to war. And this could be an interesting, I mean, I, I know this kind of seems like it's about California, but it's also an interesting legal question. You know, where, where are the limits of states defying federal law? Because this has application everywhere from states like North Dakota fighting EPA regulations, states like North Dakota and others, um, you know, legalizing marijuana to one degree or another, despite the fact that it remains an illegal drug at the national level. Uh, these are always interesting debates, interesting discussions. We'll talk with Tom about that at one o'clock. Um, meanwhile, Natil, some breaking news, a Minot lawmaker who has at times made statewide headlines for some of the stuff he's written on social media. You remember who this guy is, Natil? Uh this is the uh the libtard guy. Uh-huh, yes, okay. Yeah, uh that's uh, Roscoe Striley. He is um he is not running for re-election. He was first elected to the uh, state house in 2010. Uh, just broke the news. He is uh, on, on the blog. He is not going to run for a third term at this point. So uh, I, I don't know. I mean, I, there probably has implications more for the Minot area than anywhere else. But uh, again, he had kind of made some national headlines. At one point, I think there was a, I think it was a Concordia student started a an online petition to have him. Well, the petition was kind of dumbly to have him impeached from the House of Representatives, which I'm not even really sure what that means. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't know. Impeached from the House. Uh, 
I, I don't know. I, I don't even know what that means. But anyway, uh, he made a lot of people mad. He was certainly bombastic on social media. This is what he wrote. Uh, he told me via text message, he said, it's been a tough day, but I'm making the best decision for myself and my family. It's really that simple. Uh, he said he's circulating a letter, which you can read at sayanythingblog.com. He says, I will most likely regret this decision, but the regret I have uh, for not being home for all of my children's memories far outweighs any of that regret. Uh, I couldn't be prouder of my service and what I've accomplished for the great state of North Dakota and my community. Uh, he went on to say some will certainly celebrate this decision, and that's fine because politics is rough and tumble business. Uh, I've never cared what the haters think and never will. Um so going out defiantly, but deciding not to run wants to, uh, I, I guess, spend more time with his family, which is a refrain we often hear from politicians. But, um, you know, in this case, it is. I, 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 don't, I don't think a lot of people know or understand how much time it is, you know, all, all of the lawmakers, how much, how much of a time commitment that is. Not just the fact that every second year you have to take off, um, you know, essentially 80 days from – from whatever it is you're doing to attend the legislature, really more than that. Uh, it's also you've got to travel for committee meetings in the interim. You've got to stay involved in your community. You've got to respond to constituents. It's a big, big job, and they don't get paid a lot of money either. Um, so it's a it's a big commitment. It's a big job. It is a big-time suck, uh, which is why most of the people you see serving the legislature are, are retired or self-employed uh, and, and, and can handle those sorts of things because it's tough. Uh, 701-293-9000, 888-970-9329, email talk at WDAY.com. Um, oh, I wrote my Sunday column this morning, Nateel, and it's, it, it was sort of informed by the, b- both the debate we've been having about guns and marijuana. Um, and in both debates, I think that we often hear the argument formulated incorrectly. Because what we hear in the gun debate is, well, why does anybody need to own an AR-15? Or why does anybody need to own a, a, a semi-automatic rifle or an assault weapon or, or whatever terms to whatever degree of accuracy that, that they're using? Right? We'll hear that. Or in the marijuana debate, we'll see, you know, why do people need it for, for medicine? Why do people need it for recreational use? Why do people need to, to use marijuana? Right? That's – and when people ask those questions, and I, th- I think this is very important – for every political debate we have in this country, when people ask those questions, what are they doing? They are putting the burden of proof on the people who want to own a semi-automatic weapon or own an AR-15 or use uh, some sort of a marijuana product uh, medicinally uh, or to smoke marijuana recreationally. They're putting the burden of proof on them to justify exercising those freedoms. And I, I think that's wrong. I, I think it's actually wrong to the point of being un-American. And I, I don't use that I don't use that term lightly. I, I think it's un-American. Because I I, I think the, the American formulation of freedom and liberty is that citizens are at heart free. If you look at our Bill of Rights, these are negative rights. These these are say our citizens can do all these things, and the government can make no law to abridge them. The government must give you due process. The government must allow free speech. The government must allow you to keep and bear weapons, right? Those are all restraints on the government. And, and so to, to me, I, I, I expand that, that, that sort of really sort of the Fifth Amendment due process concept. I think you expand it to everything. You expand it to every policy debate, right? I, I start with the idea that we should all be free to do whatever we want, right? 
You start with that basic concept. Now, from there, we realize that total 100% freedom is anarchy. And since most of us don't want to live in an anarchy, most of us want to live in an ordered society, we have a process called politics through which we establish policies to curtail those freedoms to one, one degree or another, right? We have speed limits on the roads. We have city ordinances saying you got to mow your lawn. We have noise ordinances saying you can't play your music at full volume at 3 o'clock in the morning. We have those things, right? They limit your freedom. We have a debate about them. But to me, the, the default position is you're free to do what you want. That's the default position. Until somebody comes along and makes a compelling argument in favor of a policy to curtail that, that, that freedom. And then we engage in the political process and we, we pass the policy uh, and it is what it is. The courts weigh in. We have, we have the whole process and so we don't need to talk about that. But I, I think so many people get that, that first fundamental question wrong. Asking us to justify why we should do something. I don't have to justify to you, and I will not justify to you, why I may want an AR-15 rifle. I will not justify to you why I might want to smoke pot. I will not justify to you why I might want to run, own a car that is capable of traveling at several multiples of the speed limit. Now, if you want to deny me my ability to do these things, then let's have that debate. But if we're going to have that debate, the burden of proof is on you to demonstrate that we need the law. And maybe sometimes we do need the law. I'm not an anarchist. I recognize that in some ways our behavior needs to be curtailed. If we want to live in a safe society, that's the way it's got to be. But I believe if we're going to have these debates, and I think it's very, very important, because, again, I see us getting it backwards over and over again. Why do you need to do this? Why do you need to do that? None of your business. You tell me why I shouldn't be able to. That's on you. What do you think? Am, am I wrong about this? Love to hear from you. 701-293-9000, Email talk at WDAY.com. Don't go away. Another one bites the dust. Another one bites the dust. And another one gone. And another one gone. Welcome back, Rapport 970, WDY AM 93.1 FM, 701-293-9000, 888-970-9329, email talk at WDAY.com. We were actually, in the next segment, going to be talking with uh, Alexi McCammon from Axios, but apparently she had some last-minute travel plans. We're going to be talking to her about that, the uh, poll that they had out today. Not looking good for a lot of Democratic incumbents, including... Heidi Heitkamp, but it's early, and the polling's close. We'll talk about it maybe a little bit more in the next segment. Nathiel, did what I was making in that first segment make sense about, and, and just, just just to set it up again, um, I think that our default position is, is free. You can do whatever you want. And then from there, we have a debate about curtailing freedoms, and in that debate, 
the burden of proof is on the people who want to curtail freedoms. I, I don't have to justify why I want to do things, why I want to say things or own things or, or whatever. If, if you want to curtail those freedoms, you have to explain why. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Um, it it makes a lot of sense. It's, and it's, that's an argument that you've made a lot in the past about uh, things like legalizing marijuana and similar things like that. It, I, per, I have a difficult time when legalizing marijuana gets brought up in such close conjecture with the gun debate because... But it's any policy. I mean, really, to, to me, this formulation is for any policy. Uh, yes, and I, and I get where you're going with that. It just makes me a little bit woogie because there's, there's a big difference between a gun and a, and a joint. And oh, sure. Well, and, and, and again, I'm, I'm not I'm not comparing the two. You, yes, I'm you are, not you're not comparing the items. You are comparing the what, policies surrounding those items. What, 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 I'm comparing how we have a debate about policies regulating those things. And, and to me, it's whether it's smoking a joint, whether it's owning a gun. If you think I shouldn't, the, the case for owning a, a, a joint or, or the case against owning a joint is different than the case against owning a gun. And I, I, I'm, I'm in favor of doing both. I think you ought to be able to smoke weed. I think you ought to be able to own your AR-15. I don't think you ought to be able to necessarily own a bazooka, at least not with a whole lot of, of, of additional paperwork and background checks and liability and everything else. You know, I'm, I'm not. Uh, I don't think anybody, private citizen, should be able to own, like, a nuclear warhead. Um, so I'm not, like, in, in some unlimited capacity. I'm willing to have these debates. Well, all I'm saying is that as we enter these debates... If, you know, you, you don't get to say, let's outlaw books, uh, and then all of us, those of us who could want to continue to buy and read books, have to then justify books to you. Like, that's that's not how it works, and it shouldn't work that way. And it drives me nuts when people call it, why do you, because how many callers have we gotten a deal where people say, why do you need an AR-15? I don't think it matters. Now, if you want to explain why I shouldn't have an AR-15, because you think it, it's, it's going to make our society more violent, or you think uh, it's going to get stolen and used for crime, or you think kids are going to shoot themselves with it, well, whatever your case, fine, make that case. But it's not up to me to it's not up to me to explain to you why I need to own an AR-15. I'm never going to make that argument to you because I don't think I have to. That I don't think sense. I have to. It's not. It's it, the burden of proof's not on me, mm-hmm. right? And I I believe that about everything. We wanted to ban video games in a deal. Oh, I don't gosh, think the burden of proof should be on you to, to, to explain to us why video games are important to you. Yeah, but we know that's going to end up being the thing. T- Donald Trump, I don't know if, I don't know if this is going to get brought up at any other point in the show, but Donald Trump's having a discussion today with the largest industry put, representatives for video games. I think gaming. that's in the rundown, isn't it? I think maybe it's in the rundown. All right, but well, you're then, right. Then I will then I will hold my thoughts on that. Oh, we can talk about it a little bit. But, I think it's ridiculous that he's meeting with I think it's ridiculous that he's I, meeting with the video game industry. The, the the things that he says tells me that he knows so little about video games that he doesn't even know that video games are already rated by the ESRB. Yeah. And they yeah. have been rated by the ESRB for practically all of existence. Yeah. I, I remember I was I was still I was still very much in my video game years. I kind of grew out of video games a little bit, I'm, and I'm not saying they're child. Video games are cool. I wish I had more time to play them. I just I feel like I went through a time in my life where I just have a lot of time, and now I look at how far they've come, and I just feel I don't know where to get back into them. I guess it's hard for me to fit them <laughs> back into my life. I think they're fun. I look at a lot of games that I think would be fun to play. I just don't know when I'd play them. I guess is my problem. 
uh, as a as a dad and a, a busy guy. Um, but I, I don't I, I think I think blaming violent crime on video games is as dumb as just blaming them on gun ownership. I don't think that they're the same thing. Wait, tie those two back together. I don't I don't think well I don't think you, I don't think I don't think owning a gun makes you more likely to commit a crime. You may you may obtain a gun in order to commit a crime, but I don't think you commit a crime because you own a gun any more than I think you commit a crime or are violent or sociopathic or whatever because of video games. Love to hear what you think. 701-293-9000-888-970-9329. Email talk at WDY.com. We'll be right back. Don't go away. There's a real cool club on the other side of town where the real cool kids go to sit around and talk bad about the other kids. Yeah, it's a real cool club and you're not part of it. Welcome back, Rob Fortnite, 70 WDY, AM 93.1, FM, 701-293-9000, email talk at WDY.com. Is today International Women's Day? It is. That's today? Yes, it is. Well, congratulations to you, Natil. Thank for you being a lady. for being a lovely woman. I, I, <laughs> I worked so hard at I, it. I, I'll admit, I, I don't know if this makes me a sexist, mis- misogynist jerk, but I, I had no idea it was International Women's Day until I saw that McDonald's apparently is flipping their M's around to make them W's. I had honestly forgotten about it um, until this morning. <laughs> well, because last year uh, there were a lot of big marches and things happening, and so it was uh, something that had been on my radar for like the month leading up to it. And this year it's it's quieter. Yeah. And that's probably not a bad thing. Yeah, uh, you know, I don't know. I, I mean, I, I like to just get we're we're just we're all just people, and you know, race, gender, stuff like that. I mean, it's, it's hard to say that it doesn't matter because it's always going to matter. We're always going to have different experiences, and we're all always going to see that see the world through the lens of of what we are: women, men, black, white, whatever. But I don't know. Yeah, I, it's great though. It's great. When's International Men's Day? Is that a thing? It is a thing. I don't know when it is though. It's, yeah. <laughs> I've never had to pay no, attention that's all right. to it. I didn't know. I didn't know it was International <laughs> Women's Day, so I don't feel offended at all. Uh, all right. Well, that is what it is. Anyway, if if your McDonald's is suddenly sporting a W, uh, you know what's going on. It's November nineteenth. November nineteenth. Yeah, which oh. makes sense because it is part of like Movember and things like that. Oh yeah, that's right. And November doesn't do much for me, mostly because I've already got a big giant beard. Yeah, well, now, but now at least you've got the the connection in your head, so you know at least what month International Men's Day is in. Yeah. Okay. I'll have to get ready. I got to figure out what I'm going to do to celebrate. Uh, and you got to figure out what you're going to get me for International Men's Day. No, did you get me something for International Women's Day? Well, no, I forgot about it. But yeah. So. Uh... I'm a man, so that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's definitely not. Uh, okay, so let's talk about this polling that's out. Uh, polling map. First of all, and, and the polling was done, um, it was commissioned by Axios, which is a, uh, a news, online news website. You may be familiar with it. Um, that was created by some of the, the alums from Politico, which is maybe a, a, a national political magazine you've heard more of. Um, but anyway, they're, they're a serious news organization, and they commissioned a poll, uh, through SurveyMonkey which, despite the name, is actually a serious polling company. Um, they polled in a, in a number of states. 
And overall, we've been hearing a lot about this blue wave from uh, from Democrats. Uh, Democrats are defending 10 Senate seats in states that uh, Trump won in 2016. Uh, in six of those states, including North Dakota, Trump's approval is over uh, 50%. And, and if the election were ho- held today uh, and these polling results held true, uh, at least five incumbent Democrats would lose their seats to a Republican challenger. Now, in context, uh, we've got to remember uh, Republicans currently have a plus five or excuse me, plus two in the United States Senate. Uh, Democrats have to uh, pick up at least two seats. They have to net at least two seats in order to win. If five of their incumbents lose, uh, it seems pretty unlikely that's going to happen. In fact, it seems much more likely that Republicans will actually gain ground in the United States Senate. Now, all that being said, it's March. Uh, The election isn't until November 6th. So we're still a long ways out. And also, this is just one poll, and any one poll can have its problems. Uh, that being said, let's get into it. First of all, Senator Heitkamp's approval numbers, actually pretty strong, Natil. Uh, she is at 57% overall approval, including 14% who strongly approve and 43% uh, who somewhat approve. So 57% overall. Uh, the thing is, is that her disapproval is a lot more intense. 20% somewhat disapprove, 23% strongly disapprove for a 43% overall disapproval rating. Um, so she's got, she's got approval. She's got majority approval, but her disapproval's a lot more intense. Um, by comparison, Senator Hoven has, uh, 77% approval, uh, including 20% or 27% who are strongly approving, uh, 14% somewhat disapprove, 8% strongly disapprove for 22% overall. You know, it's so, pretty easy to have really high approval ratings as a senator if you never talk to your constituents. Yeah, I mean, Hoven, Hoven's really good at that. Although, to the constituents' mind, they keep electing him in landslides. I, I don't know. Because, again, he never talks to his constituents. I will say that he. I have no problem booking him on this show. I will say that. Um, I, if others have trouble booking him. And, and I'll obviously, appearing on talk radio is not the only way in which you should be communicating with your constituents. I, I, yeah, I, think, he, I think communicating with your constituents through media is definitely one Avenue, one avenue one but avenue, i think yes. that i think that our other representatives including congressman kevin kramer whom i disagree with on a lot of his politics is much easier to eminently accessible yes. say what you want about the guy if you want to talk with him you can get through to him um so that's that's all going on now in the actual race now again what this poll did because in the first the, the polling was conducted february 12th through march 5th congressman kramer announced that his senate campaign on February 16th, which means at least for the first part of this poll, uh, Kramer wasn't in. So they lined Heitkamp up against a generic Republican candidate. So Heitkamp versus a generic Republican, she's at 47% to 49%, 4% undecided. Um, she's, she's losing, I, I guess, on the numbers. That's within the margin of error, though, so you could also fairly say effectively tied. Uh, but under 50%, not a good place for an incumbent to be, even this far out from the election. Yeah, and it's going to be really interesting to see how that number starts to change here within the yeah. next few months now that Congressman Kramer Well, also, she's, her... not, she's not going to be on the ballot against a generic Republican. It's going to be uh, yeah, and that's, that's more than exactly likely it. going to be Congressman Kramer. And so Congressman Kramer is a real person who has a real voting record, who has, uh, you know, every person who looks at his his track record is going to see pluses and minuses. Uh, and that's going to change the context. But just, the, just in terms of of this is 
an evaluation of Heitkamp on her own, she's underwater, uh, which means that she can be beaten, which I, I think is what a lot of Republicans have been saying for a while. Um, now, j- just to put this polling in context, a, a poll we had from Gravis Marketing, and we had the pollster on this radio show, uh, showed Heitkamp with a slight lead over Kramer, 42.7 to 40.3. 40, uh, another poll conducted by the Terrence Group, sponsored by the Republicans, so it was a partisan-sponsored poll, uh, showed Kramer with a five-point lead, 44 to 49%. I look at those three polls, Natil, I see a toss-up. Yeah, it's it's so close that with margin of error, it's it's basically a coin flip right now. And that's yeah. not surprising. And if, if anything, I would say Kramer's got the momentum right now just because his entering the race made a big splash both in North Dakota and nationally. But it's a long ways to go. We got a caller. Karen, you're on. What's up? Yeah, um, according to the polls just before the voting in November a year ago, Trump didn't win. So you can't, you can only trust them so much. Well, yeah, that's fair. Um, you know, this poll, by the way, has Trump at 60% approval rating. Uh, in January, uh, Trump got about 63% of the vote. And, and I think in all the polls that I've seen where Trump's approval has been tracked in North Dakota, I've, I, he's typically been in that, you know, 57, 58 to, to, to 61, 62% range, right around 60%, pretty consistently. Trump's but approval he, in uh, North Dakota. So many mistakes that can really add up already this summer. The thing is, is I don't, I don't know how much Trump supporters care about those mistakes. You know, we were talking about this yesterday with the Stormy Daniels thing, right? The porn star that he supposedly had an affair. I don't think at this point, there's not a lot of question in my mind that he had an affair with this woman. And I'm, to me, I, I think that's. But but I mean, at this point, that just kind of fits in with, with what we already know about Trump. He'd had affairs before. We know he's he's kind of a scummy guy in some ways in his personal life. People knew that about him uh, and voted for him anyway. I'm talking about how his policies are going to affect the the economy already this summer and early fall. Yeah, I mean, the, I think the economy is just it's going to help Trump. The economy is going to help Trump unless this trademark this this trade thing tanks everything i don't know that's that's a whole other topic we need to talk about thanks for the call karen 701-293-9000-888-970-9329 email talk at wday.com gonna get an update from jay live on location we'll be right back don't go away Welcome back, Rob Port 970, WDY AM 93.1 FM, 701-293-9000, 888-970-9329, email talk at WDY.com. And talking about this uh, this poll for back, and I, I wrote it up at sayanythingblog.com. We got links to the poll and everything if you want to check it out. Um, oh, by the way, Doug Burgum, 84% approval rating for Governor Governor Doug. Not surprised. Uh, no, that sounds about right. <laughs> yeah, sounds about right. Um so yeah, I, I I don't know. I I don't know how to. I I, th- I think essentially the poll. You look at the three polls we've now had, and it's it's hard to compare them all because the Gravis marketing poll and the Terrence Group poll both pitted Kramer v Heitkamp, um, whereas this poll from Axios is basically Heitkamp versus a generic candidate, a generic Republican candidate. 
But I, I think what this all says, high camp's beatable. It's a toss-up. It's going to be a race, which is something I think we probably already know. Um, and, and there's probably a different way. I mean, you, you could probably spin this poll positively and say that high camp is effectively tied with a Jared generic Republican candidate uh, in, in, in the same poll that shows, you know, approval for Trump at 60 percent, approval for uh, uh, John Hoven at 77 percent, and approval for Doug Burgum at 84 percent, you know. Her approval's at fifty-seven percent. Uh, she's pitted with a with a generic Republican, uh, and and she's effectively tied. So, you know, I, I think you could say, you know, that that speaks to to the fact that there are still a lot of Republicans that are willing um, to, to cross the aisle. I I, I think that the negative spin on that is, boy, she really can't afford to lose any of them. Uh, all right, let's get to the emails. Uh, emailer says a gun versus joint. Um, Beauty is a felon can have both a gun and a joint and try to kill a Minnesota state patrolman, but the law-abiding gun owner is an issue. I'm not sure. I'm not sure what point you were making email with that. I have no idea what that even means. All right, uh, another email. Mark says, uh, Natil, Rob, Natil, you mentioned the ERSB rating. I am also an avid gamer, and be honest, you know as well as I do that there are a lot of parents who have no clue what that is. And that there are all kinds of kids playing online MMOs, MOBAs, and the like that are underage. We've all met that angsty edgelord teenager. Uh, while it is there, it really doesn't mean much, nor is it any sort of real deterrent. I think it depends on the parent. It absolutely depends on the parent, and that's on the parent. It's no different than parents that let their kids watch R-rated movies or PG-13 movies when they're six yeah. or whatever. When I worked for GameStop, we tried, we worked very, very hard to educate parents that came into our store on the ESRB ratings. The, the ES, ESRB ratings are not hard to understand. At no, all. and and we for, have, for parents who put in even even a little bit of effort, they're on the back of every box exactly where you would find the rating for a movie. They're yeah. up on the walls all over video game stores and things like that. And also, the covers of most of these games are real, usually not real ambiguous about what's going on. Absolutely yeah. not. And when he when he mentioned MOBAs, that kind of makes me a little bit fussy because most MOBAs are T for teen. I don't know what a MOBA is. A Mo- multiplayer online arena arena battle game. Um, okay. Which would be like your League of Legends, your Overwatch. All right. Things like that. Oh, well, all right. I I mean, I listen. And I think the thing is, is not okay. I mean, there's not some magical age at which your kid suddenly becomes able to handle that content it's going to vary from kids to kid i mean some kids are more mature maybe can handle that at a younger age other kids uh maybe need to wait a little while so uh, you know really that to me that's on parents exactly you know, it, it's, it's it is a hundred percent on parents as, you will, as a parent should always be monitoring the content that your child is consuming whether that's tv movies video games music to me the larger point is that we are um the larger point is that President Trump is meeting with the video game industry in the context of a school shooting in Florida. The implication being that the video violent video games are somehow associated with violence in our society. And I don't buy it. And again, I was a kid, grew up playing Doom on my computer. On Do- I, had, I had literally the DOS version of Doom. Like I had to like enter the, e- the .exe command from the command line to launch my Doom game. Natil, that's how old I am. Um, yeah, I played Doom. That was a, it still is a horrifically violent game. Also a lot of fun. Uh, and it did not turn me into a violent sociopath. In fact, all the horror movies, the Friday the 13th, 
the uh, Nightmare on Elm Street, all those all those fun movies that we watched, all the violent video games, everything. Uh, during the time, my generation growing up with that, violent crime's down, shootings are down, gun crime is down. It's the same argument you make with guns. If if the if these things are related, then where where is the surge? Where is the generation of violent violent Americans? The current generations of Americans are less violent than a lot of generations going way back. See, and so, I, I grew up without that kind of thing. I when I was playing video games, the video games I were I was playing was mostly Nintendo branded product. It was mostly yeah. things like Mario and Zelda and Pokemon. I was playing Mortal Kombat. We were like ripping people's spines out of their bodies. And stuff. See, it and was my my first fighting game was Soul Calibur, and Soul Calibur was one of the um, least like graphic fighting games there was. Like there was no blood or anything like that. I mean, you, I was still punching the crap out of other people, but it was a lot less violent than other games. And you, you're no more violent than I am. Yeah. So yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm the, the type of video games that we consumed, I mean, because I, I was reading lots of books that were far beyond. You want to know a book that will really mess a kid up? Let him read Watership Down oh, no as kidding. a seventh grader. Yeah. Because holy crap, did I read Watership Down as a seventh grader? Because it was it was worth like the most possible points in this in this stupid thing. I, I don't know. Doing. My my parents let me when it came to reading. They had it was, the video games are a little tougher sell because they're old. But when it came to reading, they let me read what I want. And honestly, I think I'm better for it. Uh, let's see. Hour one all wrapped up. Hour two coming up straight ahead. We're going to talk with Tom Del Beccaro, former U.S. Senate candidate in the 2016 cycle. He's from California. Trump suing California over sanctuary cities. We'll talk with him about that. Coming up next, don't go away. Welcome back, Rob Port 970 WDYM 93.1 FM. Happy to be with you. Reading an article from the L.A. Times, uh, the Trump administration seeking to force a defiant California to cooperate with its agenda of stepped-up immigration deportations went to federal court Tuesday to invalidate three state laws, the administration's most direct challenge yet to the state's policies. Uh, Administration officials say the three laws in question, all passed by the legislature last year, blatantly obstruct federal immigration law and thus violate the Constitution's Supremacy Clause, which gives federal law precedence over state enactments. Uh, here to talk with me about that is Thomas Del Beccaro. Uh, he ran for the United States Senate against uh, Barbara Boxer. Uh, he's also a columnist for Forbes and writes frequently about tax policy and national politics uh, for uh, places like Investors Business Daily, Rasmus and Reports, USA Today, National Review, Political, The Washington Times, and several daily newspapers in California. Uh, Thomas, thanks for your time. How are you, sir? Doing fine. Um, all right, it's well, tell us. I actually ran against Kamala Harris, which is now even worse, right? Because, God forbid, that she became. Uh, oh, that's uh, right. She wants to run for president. That's right. I don't know how I mixed that up. You're absolutely right. No, no worries. Um, so, California has turned into, it used to be a place that did really well economically. People came here for the beaches, they came here because of the movies, Silicon Valley. Ever since Trump got elected, though, the politicians don't really care about the welfare of the people, their citizens. Now they care about people who aren't here, refugees, 
and they care about people that are here illegally. And that's what this lawsuit's all about. So tell us about the three laws that the Trump administration is, is challenging. I mean, what has California done to draw the Trump administration's ire? Well, you hit it on the head. It's all about obstruction. What, what they passed, for instance, is a law that says outright that you are not allowed, businesses are not allowed to help or give aid to the federal government in their decision to deport people. In other words, they're, they're, it's illegal to provide assistance to the federal government in that regard. Now, that is blatantly unconstitutional. You, a state government cannot forbid its citizens from helping the federal government on an issue where the federal government clearly has jurisdiction, and that's what immigration is. I mean, keep in mind that President Obama sued Arizona for the same reason that Arizona was interfering in immigration. He, President Obama and his DOJ said outright that the federal government has jurisdiction here, and of course the Supreme Court agreed with him because that's the very basic premise of the United States Constitution, which is that, or one of them, which is that the federal government controls foreign policy and immigration. It's it's interesting because in another context, a number of states, North Dakota among them, uh, tried to pass legislation at one point which which said that, that no state resources un, under the Obama administration would be used to assist the federal government uh, in enacting federal gun control policies. So I this this is an unusual debate. But but the Trump is what about and, and I, I largely agree with because I, I think this is even different than the gun control debate in that the federal government, I think, has a much stronger role, obviously, in protecting our international borders uh, from illegal immigration. The federal government controls the international borders, full stop. Um, they also control the interstate borders. Um, I, I think that's pretty clear as well. But uh, let's uh, I, I, I setting that aside, because I, I think I agree with with the Trump administration's case here. The argument from Democrats in, in California is, you know, essentially uh, making a sort of a state sovereignty case, saying we're the state of California, we're allowed to make our policies, the federal government can't force us to enforce federal policy. What's your response to that? Uh, it's an interesting argument. Only since the Trump administration has the Democrats believed in states' rights, the ability of the state. To have laws that supersede, it's, it's, or yeah, it's it's amazing and, and, what a Republican or president will do for the Democratic view of of the Tenth Amendment. <laughs> Absolutely, the problem here is, and we got to keep, keep in mind historically, prior to the Constitution, we had thirteen nation states with thirteen uh, different foreign policies, thirteen different immigration policies, and like six or seven different currencies. This was causing great problems, including the ability of the country to function and trade internationally. One of the reasons we have a constitution was to stop that infighting. And by the way, there was shots fired in in some states against other states related to the problems. They, They decided, let's have one country, one foreign policy, one immigration policy, and all of that was rested in the federal government. The California itself does not have a right to have its own foreign policy and cannot decide what is legal or not legal when it comes to immigration. And importantly, in this case, 
it cannot stand in the way of the federal government exercising its power, which is what it's effectively doing here, because these laws make it put roadblocks up to prevent the federal government from doing its job. And take a look at what the Oakland mayor did. The Oakland... <laughs> The federal government was kind enough to let the city of Oakland know we're coming to arrest these criminals. And the mayor of Oakland announces the federal government's coming to arrest people and break up their families. And who got away? Murderers and rapists. Well, let me I mean, let me let me put it this way, because uh, we, we, we all have a lot of different views on illegal immigration and we have that debate endlessly. We've been having it in this country for decades, um, probably going back to its founding. We have a lot of different views on what's the appropriate level of immigration and how we're going to protect our borders. That being said, we also have a political process in place by which we can enact policies. And I, I, will, I, I think we can all acknowledge that process has failed. Congress should have acted in a lot of ways. It hasn't. I mean, you look at the, you look at the debate over DACA. I mean, the Trump administration's message to Congress is essentially, fix this. This is your job. It's illegal for the executive branch to be handling this on its own. Congress needs to act. But all that aside, just cutting through all of that, is this really what we want to promote? Or is, is this sort of this, this, this lack of courtesy, this lack of cooperation between state governments and federal governments? Because, I'm fine with us all disagreeing on policy and having that debate and engaging in the political process of doing that. I am not fine with with states and, you know, essentially telling the federal government, we're not going to cooperate with you. In fact, we're going to actively undermine you. I don't think that that's something we want in our country, whatever the issue. Yeah, well, look, I wrote a book called The Divided Era, which talks about this, the intensity of division in America today and where it comes from. And the Democrats nationally have made it very clear they're out to get voters. The existing voters in the United States isn't enough for them to take the U.S. Senate back anytime soon. If they could, they're close. They could get the House. But what they want is the next generation of voters. They don't have a plan for existing citizens. They, don't, they are against tax because they're against everything. So what do they do? They've gone out and, and been very proactive. And they're willing to put the Constitution aside to make their case. I mean, think of the ludicrous. Remember when when Trump was made the executive orders related to refugees? They made the ludicrous argument, and the crazy Ninth Circuit Court out here says, "Oh yeah, some students won't be able to come to Washington, therefore Washington State. Therefore, the the president's executive order is, is wrong." As you said earlier, suddenly they're Tenth Amendment people. When when Obama was president and he sued Arizona, Democrats didn't come out and say, oh, we're for the Tenth Amendment. Let Arizona do what it wants. So this is just politics. It's part of the intense fight. California has filed something like 30 lawsuits against the Trump administration. This is what it means to fight for power in this decade. Is this part of that? Because we heard shortly after the election, and I don't, I don't live in California, and, and no offense to Californians, I like, I, I, I like, I like North Dakota. <laughs> um, you know, I, I, the California seems like a lovely place, except for all the all the politicians there. <laughs> Uh, but let me, I, 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 we, I mean, we heard all the stuff about, you know, California wanted to like secede from the union. And I think a lot of us rolled our eyes, but now we have, you know, governor Jerry Brown sort of out declaring war 
on the Trump administration. We have the dozens of lawsuits against the federal government uh, that you just mentioned. Now, now listen, North Dakota files a lot of lawsuits against the federal government to fight like the EPA and stuff and to try to keep them out of our business. I get that to a degree. But is this the the quote unquote resist movement manifesting itself in mainstream California politics? Well, I don't know. There is no mainstream California politics anymore. It's far left. It's a one-party state, and they ignore existing citizens. They have destroyed. You know, California used to be the breadbasket of the world. They ignore that and and hurt farmers. California has the number one poverty rate in the country. Over 30% of the nation's welfare recipients are in California, but only 17% of the population. There's a massive homeless problem here. They don't care about its existing citizens. They're following Chuck Schumer and the rest, in a sense, of saying, all we, we care about Amer- uh, the downtrodden who aren't here yet. And they're talking about illegal immigrants and refugees. So they have just gone really far left. I mean, remember, they wouldn't endorse Dianne Feinstein been in office forever. Instead, they gave four of their delegate votes to a very far-left Kevin DeLeon. So California is no longer mainstream. It is The California Democrats are what it would be like if the, the House went back to the Democrats this fall. Tom, last question. I, I mean, we, again, we make all this argument. Supporting the Tenth Amendment is kind of a traditional Republican slash conservative position. I think we embrace that here in North Dakota. Again, we sue the federal government a lot as a state over all sorts of issues about federal encroachment into places like, you know, oil and gas development, agriculture. We sue the federal. Thank a lot. you for doing that. Right, uh, but. Are, are, are we just doing the opposite? Because we just talked about how Democrats uh, all of a sudden have an appreciation for states' rights when we have a Republican president. Are, are, are you and I doing the opposite where all of a sudden we're, we're fine with federal overreach as long as it's a Republican president? Well, you, it's an interesting equation. Years and years ago, I wrote about the fact that Republicans are resorting going to the courts to create federal laws to stop some of these individual state actions. It's a... It's a catch-22 for us. But on this issue of immigration, which is plainly, as the Supreme Court said in the Arizona case when Obama pushed that case, this is plainly federal, and we shouldn't allow it. We shouldn't allow the state. Imagine if we have 50 different immigration rules. So in this particular case, I wouldn't agree with that. But overall, as government gets bigger and bigger and bigger, that's the danger, and you're right to point it out. Tom, thanks for your time today. Appreciate it. All right. Hope to be back. That's Tom Del Barcaro, former Senate candidate in California, talking about the. It's an interesting issue. It really is, and it has implications for our whole country. More to come straight ahead. 701 293 9000, 888 Email talk at WDAY.com. Don't go away. Port 970 WDY AM 93.1 FM. That is an interesting, and it's kind of the eternal debate in the American system of government is where does where should the federal government stop and the state governments begin? 
And it is a really interesting question. I, you know, say what you will about how you feel about California and its sanctuary cities and whatnot. But the the overarching debate here is exactly what you said, where states' rights begin and where the federal government begins. And and people's opinions on those things change depending on who's in power. I, I remember, um, you know, we saw Democrats. I mean, Obama did a lot by executive order. He just he did. Uh in order basically to get around Congress that for most of his term in office was controlled by Republicans. So, you know, he issued a ton of executive orders and Democrats are fine with that. Uh, and now that Trump's done a lot of it, now all of a sudden it's it's states rights. And, you know, Thomas brought up a good point. Uh, the state of Arizona had their stop and frisk law or oh, wait, what was the law? It was it was basically a law allowing what well, was it? It was allowing like like state level law enforcement and below to to question the citizenship of potential illegal immigrants right something along those lines and the obama administration sued over it yeah that that wasn't stop and frisk because stop and frisk no. had stop to, and frisk something else yeah yeah, yeah. but I, I you're right i can't remember what they were calling it was the pa- it, papers yes. please or something like that the papers please or whatever um i i i don't know i, I mean in this instance and i, I do I, I try to be very circumspect because i am i am a state's rights guy i believe I think it's very hard to make national policy from the federal level for a country as big and diverse as this one in every way that a country can be big and diverse. I mean, geographically, racially, culturally, uh, it's we're a big, diverse country. I generally like policy decisions that are made locally. I think the federal government should be very limited in what it does because I just don't think that there are a lot of policies that make sense for the whole country. Now, this might shock you coming from me, but I think that immigration is one of those things that needs to be handled at a federal level. Yeah. Well, because it's an international border. Yes. Because it's an international border. Because so there's just when, no... when someone comes to California, like if someone comes into California to live as an immigrant, they're not regulated to just stay in California. Right. Yeah. I mean, once California lets them in, there's nobody, there's no border patrol, you know, on the border with Nevada. Right. And, and from there, Utah and, and Wyoming and Montana all the way up to North Dakota. Like, once you're in, you're in. Uh, and so if we're going to have laws governing entrance into this country, which I think we all agree that we should, you know, the federal government needs to be in charge of that. And, and so people who flout those laws are, are basically fug- fugitives from the law, from federal law enforcement. And I think it behooves the states to cooperate with federal law enforcement. And I, think I, it I would don't behoove the states in a lot of ways to argue that the current laws are not the correct laws. I mean, right. if, if you don't want to follow the laws, then you need to change them at the federal well, level here. And see, and that's that's another point too. I don't think government officials should be able to just pick and choose which laws they're going to enforce. Right? I mean, if it's an awful law and you don't like enforcing it, the, the, the darn it, let's change the law. Because you know what happens is we don't enforce the law. We end up with stupid, archaic on the law, laws that are on the books forever and don't ever get taken off the books. And then maybe sometimes end up getting enforced in other stupid ways. North Dakota had a cohabitation law. I, I, I think, I think the, I think it was, was it the 2007 session? I don't even remember. But North Dakota, it, it was illegal to, to cohabitate without being married. In North Dakota there's, until like 2007. There's still some stupid cohabitation laws in North Dakota where like you can't yeah. live with X number of people that you aren't married or related to. Yeah. 
You know what? Like if, why? I've a, if I've got a great big house, I'm going to live with whoever I want to. Those laws should be taken out. And to create the imp- I mean, maybe if, maybe to create the impetus to change laws, we ought to start enforcing them. There you go. Tick some people off. We'll see how quickly change comes. Um, I, I, I don't know. I, I don't. Because, listen, we fought a revolution against the idea of a monarchy, right? And a monarchy is, is basically you just have an autocrat who's just making up the law as they go along, right? Like, I'm the king. I decide what the law is. I decide what justice means. Uh, and sometimes we'll have a good king and sometimes we'll have a bad king. The American system of government, we, we rejected that. Said so we're not going to have a king. We're going to have people who are elected to represent the people. And they are going to, to enforce laws that are written down, and everybody's going to be equal under the law. Except what good is writing down the law if the people in charge of enforcing the law pick and choose when they're going to enforce it? And, and I'm not talking about, you know, giving cops some, some discretion on, you know, whether or not to write a ticket. I think we can all agree that's fine. I'm talking about in, in, in the grand scheme of things, right, when we're talking about immigration policy. I understand that the the current leadership of the state of California doesn't like our federal laws. Okay, fine. But they are what they are. And if you don't like them, change them. And if you can't change them, you may just have to accept that they are what they are. There's a lot of laws that we have to accept. People who are pro-life have to accept that abortion is legal. They have to live with that. Now, they're they're free to go out and and advocate and to protest uh, and and to engage in in all the legal uh, activities that they want in order to try to change the law, but they have to accept that the law is the law. And I think we can all agree that we can't just, you know, all of a sudden ignore the law and start closing down abortion clinics. That wouldn't be right. That's not the rule of law. That's not the democratic process. I mean, that's that's what really bothers me here, is, is it, it gets down to the basic level of the rule of law. And I think, you know, I'm not like a real law and order type guy. I'm not, I'm not one who's out to, like, just make a bunch of, things illegal and regulate everything i generally want people to be able to choose for themselves and live how they want to live but if we're not going to have the rule of law if we're not going to enforce the laws that are written down then what what's the point of any of this what's the point of the elections and all the time and all the money we spend electing people and writing laws and everything else what's the point of any of it if some people could just decide well we're not going to enforce that law there is no point and that's the problem all right, we'll be right back. We're going to do the rundown coming up next. 701-293-9000-888-970-9329. Email talk at WDY.com. Don't go away. You here with me, not way over in a bucket The Rob Report. The Rob Report. On 970 WDAY. The Rundown. All right, Natil, what's out there? Well, we're going to start with for two months. I got my news from print newspapers, and this is what I learned. A New York Times column about getting getting your news from an actual newspaper. I feel like that might be a little self-serving, coming from a New York Times columnist. From well, an industry that still very much wants people to read on print. Well, in a way, but he, you know, he was, the, the author talks about how he uh, was happy to have missed out on some news that happened that he didn't really need to spend so much of his mental bandwidth thinking about um and he you know he he got some news from things like email newsletters and podcasts and things like that but he basically just wanted to see if 
depth over depth and accuracy over speed was still something that might be happening out there. And yeah. we, we see a lot of that in the 24-hour news cycle. Speed is the most sought-after pillar yeah. of news these days. And I, I, I think a lot of it is... A lot of it, a lot of it's social media and a lot of people, because you get, you get a lot of responses being in the know. Uh, and I, I see that a lot with people who, because I guess, I guess I'm someone where people, when they post things, they want me to notice it, I, I guess, hoping that I'll link to it or I'll retweet it or whatever. And I, I, I think you see a lot where, it's kind of like I, I think it's a good thing that we have this sort of citizen journalism thing going on where people are collecting information and sharing information. And I think generally that's a good thing. Um, that's kind of where I started out. On the other hand, I, I think the problem is, is everybody that kind of turns into everybody having a hot take. And a lot of those are, are just wrong. Right. So, something will happen. A school shooting, um, some sort of an attack, an airplane crash, whatever. And people start trying to shoehorn it into their preferred narrative. And a lot of times that's just flat out wrong. Uh, and then they'll, they'll start hunting for anything that fits that narrative. Or, you know, the, the really unscrupulous ones will just start making things up. I, I think obviously the much slower, not only in, in print journalism, because believe it or not, all the people out there who say that I'm fake news and I'm just making things up in my column, um, because I work for a media organization, I'm not allowed to just make things up. If I if I write something that is factually incorrect, right? If I write something that's just factually wrong, not an opinion that you disagree with, but just factually wrong, I have to do a correction, right? That's that's the standard. Uh, and so I think you have that. And then also because it's print, it's slower. You got more time. You don't feel because I, I tell you, you know, people feel pressure to put information out on social media quickly even reporters feel that to just they, they want to be first yeah that's that's exactly it and that's that's something that i mean i'm a couple of years removed from my um journalism degree now but we talked there's there's certain pillars of the news cycle of journalism there's things like timeliness and proximity so like people in fargo care about stories that are happening around fargo we don't really care about stories in a small town in arizona there's all of these different pillars, but timeliness is just becoming more and more so intensely focused that it's just dwarfing every other pillar. It's all about speed. It's all about who gets the story first, who gets the information up first. And it's gotten to the point where a lot of times information will go up and in like 30 seconds that information will change and you, they just the story gets edited quickly. And you just edit the story and, and move on. And that's that's frustrating to me. I don't I don't like that sort of piecemeal Yeah. Here's here's A and B and then F and X and we'll fill in everything else in the next maybe day or two. Yeah, um it's I, I think I think it's a tough thing in that I, I don't know what the fix is, right? Like I don't know how because the media has become so fragmented and so hyper competitive that I don't, I don't know, I, I, I don't know what you do with it. I don't, I don't know what the fix is either. I don't know how you fix it. I'm not sure. Tough thing. It's interesting. I, I, I can tell you, I, I couldn't do with just 
newspapers. I mean, and and probably my my news consumption is probably not like anybody else's because I'm <laughs> you're, constantly you're around the clock. Yeah, your news consumption is probably like massive compared to even other people that work in the media. Right. I I watch. I read. Somebody asked me like, well, what news sources do you read? I pretty much read everything. <laughs> Every day, does, does I have it, it all. Exist? I have it all I've aggregated. It. <laughs> I have it all aggregated. I try to read pretty much everything. I, I try to have, be up on everything. Now I don't succeed in that because I'm a human being, and there's only so many hours in a day. Uh, but I really try. Um, you know, I, I really, I, I think, I, I think what this guy's hitting on is the fact that the print gives you more time, and more time allows you to be circumspect about things, and and makes it more likely that you're going to get something right. Um. Or as a news consumer that you're going to get something accurate. And so I, I think the lesson from that is not let's all just start reading our news on print anymore. The lesson now is maybe don't just believe the first thing you see on Twitter when some, when breaking news is happening. You know, be circumspect, question, be be more uh, um, questioning, I guess. I think I think we need to be reminded i think the best lesson here is that we need to be reminded that all types of news are important types of news and in order to be a well-informed citizen of your country of your nation of your world you need to be consuming a wide berth of types of media yeah all right yeah. ready for the next Let's, one what's next yeah. <laughs> tammy duckworth says that babies should be allowed on the senate floor now she's uh she's a Democrat from Wisconsin, I believe. Yep, and she is the first US senator who is expected to be giving birth while serving in office. And so she wants to be able to bring her baby on the floor of the Senate. Yes, because the current rule is that children are not allowed on the floor. She's concerned that there are going to be important issues coming up in the Senate that she will not be able to vote on because children are banned from the floor. Yeah, I mean it's tough. I because I act interestingly. My daughter actually brought this home from one of her classes at high school, and we were having a discussion about it. And I mean, the thing is, is you can't you can't really give maternity leave for somebody who's in the Senate, right? Like we can't the we can't hold up the business of the whole nation because somebody's somebody's out on on maternity leave. You know, exactly. Or, or same same. I mean, Congressman Kramer right now is has been spending a lot of time with his son who has been very, very ill, who I, the most recent headline is that the, he's been moved to Mayo Clinic, um, that, you know, he's been missing votes. And that's just kind of the way it has to be. We can't hold up the business of the nation because somebody's got a family thing going on. As, as, as sympathetic as we may be to that situation, you just can't do it. I don't, I don't know that bringing a baby on the floor of the Senate is a solution, though. I, I, that sounds like a bad idea to me. I don't, I don't see why there can't be more flexibility in the in the rule i mean like as protocol, I, I think it could be disruptive but i i, th I think the other thing is is you're going to start you're going to start seeing they're going to use the kids as political props too you, you know they will well but i then then i think you need to be able to spell it out a little more you say something along the lines of you know after after giving birth or adopting an infant how about for... how about this how about how about somebody who's in a like like define a qualifying family situation like just had a baby or or something like that define that in the law and then say somebody who meets those conditions uh can assign somebody else their proxy to vote assign another senator to cast your vote for you i suppose that would be and that way if she i mean she wouldn't be able to speak right she wouldn't be able to deliver speeches which 
The okay, only, whatever. But the only question she could that still I have, cast her vote. Yeah, the only question that I have there then is whether or not if there are other things, like if there was a, a hearing that she really needed to be at, would that? She, well, she wouldn't be able to necessarily ask questions at the hearing, but I, I suppose if she was on that committee, she could assign another committee member the right to cast her vote for her. It would, that so would that definitely at least be a step in the right direction, in my opinion. I, I think because I would prefer this, that to bringing kids on the Senate floor. I mean, yeah, because I mean, this, this just seems like something that's that's so antiquated, especially when we've been pushing so hard for. But, but there's a lot of leave. professions. I mean, doctors can't bring the kid into the operating theater. No, but the doc, right? but the doctor can. Take, I can't. I can't have can take my leave though. A I senator can't, have can't my, take the leave. Yeah, I suppose. I suppose uh, it's it's a tough situation. I, I I would just like to avoid getting kids out in in the Senate floor. I just don't think. I don't think there's anything antiquated by that. I just don't think that's an appropriate environment for for little babies. You know, and, and she's talking. I think she's talking about in the first year. You know, so you're talking about less than one year old. So I, I don't know. And I, I like I, I like pr- the proxy vote idea better. The, and the proxy vote idea is is fine. It's a step in the right direction. I just I don't think it would be terribly disruptive. There was an important vote. She comes in. She's got the baby. She makes her vote. Then she exits the room. Yeah. Uh, All right. What's next? Regulations sought for service dogs. Advocates are saying owners of untrained dogs are abusing the privilege. And holy halibut are they. Yeah. What are they they proposing in terms of a crackdown? So Minnesota lawmakers want to crack down on people who are falsely claiming their pets as true service dogs. Um, they are putting out a proposal that is led by Representative Steve Green, a Republican, and uh, Senator Justin Icorn. Is it Icorn? I think that's right. Um, a Republican from Grand Rapids, saying that misrepresenting an animal as a service dog would become a petty misdemeanor, punishable by a hundred dollar fine for the first offense. I think that sounds fair. I, I think there's a lot of people who do that. Well, maybe I don't want to say a lot. There are some people who do this, and I think they make life more difficult for the people who actually need the service animals. They do, and there there's a difference. Like, there are different classifications for a reason. There's a difference between a service dog and an emotional support animal, an ESA. Like a comfort animal. Well, yeah, a, a comfort animal is a, is a type of ESA. I mean, because ESAs are a very good, very important part of a lot of people's recovery with mental health issues, and we talk about yeah, but we've got some crazy issues. stuff going. I mean, we had that lady who tried to bring a peacock on a Delta flight, and that's that's an ESA as opposed to a service dog. So what I right. what I'm saying is that the classification of ESA is important because it it deals with uh, regulations in housing. So, for example, I can't be denied housing in North Dakota because a, a particular landlord doesn't want dogs on their property, but because I have Antilles, who is registered as an ESA for me I can't be denied housing because he's he's an ESA because my doctor and I have decided that having a dog is to, an important to me, part I, of my mental me, health recovery I, to, I, I feel like it's just been kind of a wild west so far and not a lot of people understand what these are and, and I think the differences in classification are not well defined which is the problem and so, and so I, I think we need to define them better and make it clear what 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 you're entitled to if you have that sort of an animal exactly because um, because there's, I'm not, there's I'm no not, way that I would bring Antilles into a store or I'm into, not against like, I'm not against I'm not against accommodating some of this stuff for legitimate need but it's being abused absolutely and, and it, it needs to be fixed so, and I so kudos, and I, say I, that, I hope they get it right in Minnesota where they could draw the line so that we're not denying 
so that we're not hurting the people who really need this stuff, but we're also getting rid of some of the people who just want to bring their pets everywhere. Yeah, and I and I say that as someone who has an ESA. I mean, yeah. if like if I had if I had epilepsy and I had a seizure alert dog, then that dog would be with me everywhere. Antilles is yeah. not alerting to seizures. All right, what's next? Scientists are 99% sure they have found bones that belong to Amelia Earhart. This is an interesting story. Now, now, which bones are they? Like, where were these bones discovered? Uh, they are bones that were discovered on the Pacific island of Nicamaroro in 1940. And they were oh. initially thought that the bones were male and then were lost. So, like, they found the bones... The original people were like, these are these are bones that belong to a male. And then the remains were just, they've, they've gone away. We don't know where the remains are. Now, now is that the island? Because what was it? I, I Was it a couple years ago that there was one where they found, and I've been fascinated by Amelia Earhart for, for a long time. It I was think just, it's just, yeah, it was just last year that they, they found some photographs that they thought were her plane well, and they her found, from they behind. They found like some, well, well, they also found some like wreckage. I, I thought on an island. Oh, and, I don't and remember some other, the story and, and like, about the wreckage. Like, like, well, yeah. Well, they found some evidence that somebody had survived on a, had had crash landed and survived on an island. Yeah, for and she a while. she was basically a prisoner of war. No, that that they were just on. It was like a vacant island. Oh, okay. Because there was a story that came out last year where they thought that she had been kept hostage okay. somewhere for a while too. I didn't see that one, but uh, okay. there was one where it's, it's because they even had. They even had, it was, I don't know if it was like cigarettes or a medication or something, and they could prove that she had that exact th- thing with her. I mean, there's so, to me, the article seemed really compelling. But was that the island where these bones were found? I am not sure. I didn't notice that in the article when I was reading All right. it. All right. Well, it's and an I interesting mystery. I hope it would be nice to solve that one. Right. Um, I've been fascinated by that one for a long time. I think that's cool to be a bit of history. She was such a uh, wonderful and awesome woman. It did frustrates me that we had no I mean, idea. Really sort of the last of, or, or close to the last of, of the explorers, right? I mean, it doesn't yeah. really feel like we have, other than like, like obviously space exploration, I think is, is sort of, but we haven't been doing a lot of that lately. So really was, was sort of the, the last of the really famous sort of adventurers. Right. Like like doing maybe there's been others. I don't know. But it it seemed like she existed right at the tail end of when we just reached a point where there's kind of no more frontiers anymore. Right. Yeah, basically. That's I guess that's kind of how I've seen her. Oh, Oh, space. And you were space is the last frontier. You're totally right. One of the the really well publicized (laughs) theories Space, the final frontier. One of the well-publicized current theories about Amelia Earhart is that she died a castaway after landing on this island. Yeah. So oh, okay. Have, so on the island where they found yep, the bones. Yep. On the island where they found the bones, but they never well, made the connection. But, yeah. But they never made the connection between those remains and Amelia Earhart until recently because the wow. bones are missing now. Well, well, where'd the bones go? Did they just get destroyed. They're just missing. There, there, Somebody so out there has Amelia Earhart's bones. Right? There was a, a doctor, a forensic scientist, that um, described the remains that had been found back in 1941. And he described them as belonging to a male. But going back and going over his documentation, they believe that because of things um, in, like, the the measurements of, her, of the pelvis bones of the remains that they more than likely belonged to a woman, not a man, based on what we know now about the difference in 
subpubic angles hmm. between men and women. Well, chalk one up for uh, knowledge of subpubic angles. All right. <laughs> Line I never thought I'd say on the radio. Natil, let's wrap it up. <laughs> You're listening to AM 970 WDAY 93.1 FM. This is the Rob Report. And that's the Rundown. Welcome back, Rob Port. Wrapping things up. Jay Thomas show coming up next. You, of course, want to stay tuned for that. I like the idea of proxy, but I've been thinking a lot about this maternity leave thing for because I am like I, I am sensitive to that. I mean, I've had my own kids, and I've taken uh, I've been thankful to work for for companies or, or been able to, you know, take time off as as a dad. Um, you know, most of the time we think of maternity leave is is for women. I, I think it's important for dads too, if he can do it, if he could swing it. And it, I know it's not possible for everyone, but. Um, it was important to me, and, and so it's 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 not that I'm unsympathetic to the idea of being able to stay home. I think you should be able to stay home, but I I don't know. Some professions, I I just I don't know that you can. And some professions, you just can't take your kids to work. Um, and we may just have to accept that that the United States Senate, United States Congress, uh, is one of them. You know, because I'll tell you, I I don't want to see kids running around on the floor of uh you know, well I I say that. There's, there's a lot of times there are kids on the floor. You know, I, that's interesting. Now that I think about that, there are kids on the floor of the legislature a lot of the time. I don't know if you've ever watched, the, you know, some of the floor sessions. A lot of times you'll see a lawmaker standing to speak. Uh, they'll be sitting there, uh, and there'll be some little kid sitting next to him. And it'll be, you know, somebody who came to visit the legislature from that lawmaker's district or a friend of the family or a relative or a school kid or something like that. Um, so they do do they do that a lot. So I don't know. Uh, let's sneak in Joe here before we go. Go ahead, Joe. What's up? Well, I was just thinking when uh, someday if they ever get the pot legalized, then I'll start growing that, and then I could stay home and uh, you know I'll be raising pot and I could smoke a little and sell the rest. Everything. <laughs> I have good. a feeling like that's going to be a competitive market, though, Joe. There's going to be a lot of people doing that. I think. I think there's going to be a land rush. Right. As long as I don't smoke more than I sell, though, you know. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. If you smoke your own supply. It's not a very good business practice. Right, and I'm not going to have any middleman involved, you know, so that'll help. So you're just going to sell it, just grow it and sell it directly? I think so. All right. Well, good for you, Joe. All right. Sounds, like sounds like you got a business plan in place. Um, although the thing is, I, I think a lot of people think when you're self-employed, like you could just take time off whenever you want and it's life's on easy street. Uh, no, because the problem is when you're self-employed, nobody else can just fill in for you, right? When you're self-employed and you take time off, nobody else is doing the work if it's your business. Nobody else could do what you do. I don't know what, what's Thomas showing me here? Thomas has got some skull. No, some sort of skull thing. I don't know what Thomas it is. Thomas has been smoking his supply, that's for sure. Um, anyway, he's coming up next. Uh, that's it for me. You can catch me 20, uh, well. 12 to 2 p.m. Monday through Friday, right here on 970 WDY AM 93.1 FM, 24 hours a day, seven days a week at anythingblog.com. Thanks for listening. We'll talk again. Let's go.